Hey, it's Brian Curtis from The Ringer, and I want to tell you about the Press Box podcast. The Press Box is a podcast for anybody who likes news, whether it's about sports or politics or pop culture, and wants to understand how that news really gets made. We have new shows every Monday and Thursday. We have long interviews with everyone from John Krakauer to Joe Buck. Your social media feeds are bursting with information every day. Let us help you sort it out. Join us on the Press Box. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership, visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio where every day is leap day. It's Andy Greenwald! That's nice. Is this, do you think this is our first leap day show? I mean, you would think after 11 years we've probably done a leap day before. How often does leap day happen? It's been 12 years, but what? How often does leap day happen? <laughs> How often does it happen? Yeah. Does it, it happen? doesn't happen every year, right? No. This is it. Wait, are you actually asking <laughs> I, this? I could not care. I really never pay attention to this. What is what is late leap day? It's every four years. There's and a it, February 29th. That's why I was confused about why rent wasn't due. That's right. Okay. This is fascinating. So you've made it. Uh, wait, let me do the quick math. You've made it 11 leap days uh-huh. in your life. Yes. Without knowing what it was. Like, I have, like, a vague idea about it, but I just wasn't really, like, fixated on it. Where you was know? your baseball team playing that week <laughs> when they taught that we in were, school? We were in Florida doing uh-huh. a little spring training. Uh-huh. Just pitchers and catchers, though. You but, know? But do you remember the episode? There's the great episode of Parks and Recreation where they find out that Jerry's birthday is February 29th. Uh, yeah. So it's actually, they throw him a Sweet 16 party. Oh, that's he's funny. 16. That's funny. Was there also a 30 Rock Leap Day episode? Probably. Okay. I'm sure Kai, Kai can get into that for us. <laughs> She's pretty important. Grill, it's great to see you. Yeah? Uh, yeah, of course it is. Yeah, uh, good. I'm glad. I'm glad you're happy to see me. I, I felt a little Are ashamed. Are you happy to see me? Or You're fine. <laughs> I, 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 um, I feel I was worried because, and I, I wanted to begin with this, that um, I was a little abashed because I made a, um, oh, yeah. a verbal gaffe. Yeah. I misspoke. And, you know, Generally, uh, the American people are very forgiving 
when public figures make gaffes or misspeak. So yes, especially I, aged white men. Yeah. So last week we were having a, I thought, a really enjoyable um, digression about um, charity concerts in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily for our listeners, I think we did this around minute 51. So I know retaining, we were retaining 100% listenership according to the data that I'm shown. And um, we were talking about, or I was talking about how I attended Lollapalooza 93 in the wrecked, the ruins of a stadium in Philadelphia that they had recently demolished. And it was the stadium where the Live Aid concert had happened a few years before. Yes. That concert was JFK Stadium. Yes. I called it RFK Stadium. Well, I mean, you're a huge Kennedy guy. And yes, I think right. you just betrayed your your Bobby leanings. Well, I appreciate that. You know, I think that he... <laughs> you love attorney generals. We don't know attorneys general. <laughs> yeah. It's, I, I, we don't know what his, his vision for the country would have been, sadly. But um, I do think that you pointing that out does help keep the spotlight on me. Because as two Philadelphians sitting here, each with equal access to microphones, you really let me hang myself on that. I, I, it's an interesting question about like who bears responsibility, the person who said it or the person who was paying attention sort of like 60% to what? Like, <laughs> I got 60% during that chat? I, I, you know how locked in I am on you, uh-huh. you know? Um, Andy, it's great to see you. Are we, 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 we okay? Yeah, we're fine. No, I felt, I, I, I was worried how this was going to play out because <laughs> I, it's just been haunting me since Monday. I know. You, it's the first thing you texted. <laughs> yes. I, 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 you know. You I, can always call Kaya and just be like, I need to punch this in and just be like. Absolutely blah, not. Blah, blah, blah. JFK Stadium. No, we do not. No, no. We give it to the people raw and uncut. And then we just take the comments as they are. Yeah. Yeah. No, we, have we ever, have we ever gone back and edited anything? Uh, yes. Yeah. Have we? For sure. Yeah. Oh, well, there are all those podcasts <laughs> where I'm like, True Detective season one is great. I loved it. That's right. More stories about angry men, please. <laughs> Look, that was, that was me. They've mm-hmm. never steered us wrong. No. Uh, Andy, today on the pod, I wanted mm-hmm. to talk to you about some news at the top, and then we're going to talk a little bit about the first two episodes of Shogun. And we'll do a little preview of The Regime, which is coming on mm-hmm. Sunday from Will Tracy, who, who people may know uh, as a writer on Succession and stars Kate Winslet. Um, he wrote The Menu, too, right? He did write the menu. Mm-hmm. He did. Did you like the menu? Uh, I don't know why my, my voice went so high when I asked you. You were worried about what I was going to say because I, I think look, you're looking at me like I'm unpredictable. Uh, I no, I just, today. I mean, you know, you, you're a, one of our greatest critics, so I never know. <laughs> uh-huh. You are. Um, I enjoyed the menu. Yeah, I watched it on a plane where I was just very happy to be watching. Yeah. So I, I didn't feel like I had my full critic suit on that day. You know, really? Because you seem is, to get a lot out of plane viewing that you would be like... I, I generally love yeah, everything yeah. that I see on planes and I weep. So, you know. <laughs> Just crying at Anya Taylor-Joy mm-hmm. eating scallops. <laughs> no, she seems like she loves it. Um, so that's coming on Sunday on HBO. We'll talk a little bit about that later in the pod. For the news side of things, Andy, a mm-hmm. couple ones. Number right. one, okay. Sally Rooney's got a novella coming out in the fall. You say what? You're breaking news yeah, to me. What? I'm breaking news to you. Kai was like, I know when I came in and I was like, <laughs> did you hear? And she was like, about Sally Rooney. Intermezzo is the name. But by the way, for our listeners, yeah. it'll be sm- seamless for them. But that was apparently a classic watch step down while we Googled something. <laughs> Chris was Googling the Sally Rooney information. I was Googling the uh, ninth episode of the sixth season of 30 Rock was called Leap Day. Okay, that, so I'm glad that we're all we're all ready to go now. <laughs> yeah, three hours passed in real life. We went and got a sandwich. 
Um, no, I just, I love to see your face when I tell you about Sally Rooney news. This is exciting. Yeah. So Sally Rooney's got a novella kind of coming. Uh, it's called Intermezzo. Yeah. It tells the tale of two brothers, Peter and Ivan Kubek, mm-hmm. and how they cope with the death of their father. Peter is a successful Dublin lawyer in his 30s who is medicating himself to sleep and struggling to manage relationships with two very different women. Uh, his enduring love, first love, Sylvia and Naomi, a college student for whom life is one long joke. And then Ivan has begun seeing an older woman with a turbulent past. This is great. I, so, so Kaya's locked in on this. Which one of us is going to read this first? Uh, Kaya. 100% Kaya. <laughs> um, has this been snapped up for television yet? That's why I brought it up. Because we have, we have just been so, so locked in on the Rooneyverse as an expanding television footprint. One thing I think... Look, I... I and I, that I, previous two series were normal people, obviously, introducing the world at large to Paul Mescal and, and then... Um, Daisy Edgar Jones. Daisy Edgar Jones, and then Conversations with Friends, which I loved. Which introduced people to Joe Alwyn, whom no one had ever heard about before. <laughs> Certainly in the larger culture or tabloid world. Yeah. I think this podcast gets a lot of, you know, credit for really being on the front lines of obscure, often violent noirs that only we like. I know. I don't think we get recognized for being the leading champions of literature written by women in their early 30s. <laughs> Because all I want to talk about on this podcast is Emma Klein's The Guest. All I want to talk Kaya, about... you read that, right? <laughs> she's, just, she's not even coming to the mic. She she just knows that this is yes. a dangerous <laughs> place. Are you enjoying? I finished. I, I couldn't put it down. My wife just read too. She loved it. Chris, you? I have not because I'm too busy. You're in... What's his reading name? Reading Rachel <laughs> Kushner's The Mars Room, dog. Yeah. Well, she's not... She doesn't fit our mandate, which is let's listen to men in their 40s talk about novels written by women in their 30s, but... Why doesn't she fit the mandate? Because she's she's a senior to that age. Okay, but she did write a, movie, a book about being in prison. <laughs> she rules. Rachel Cusk rules. Kushner. What? Rachel yeah. Kushner. Yeah. You said Rachel Cusk. Oh, Rachel Cusk rules too. Yeah. All the Rachels. You're, I'm smoking that Kush. I don't know, but you always I talk about- I smoke that Cusk. <laughs> I know. I know. There are two genders. <laughs> okay. Kushner and Cusk. Kaya, you have a- you have your eye on the metrics always, and you don't share them with me, which I appreciate. Mm-hmm. What do you think, like, big picture, what would be the swing if we went from covering um, big-ticket IP and television shows to only talking about Can't you tell that that's what this episode is? I have nothing for you. Like, what do you, like, we would lose some a little bit, but, like, we would be okay, right? I think that we would have a, a floor that would stay solid. I think you could go into, like, the Patreon market with that kind of content. Because, like, the real heads would want it. So you think we should, in addition to The Watch, launch a Patreon-fueled podcast where we just talk about books written by women authors in the 21st century? Two guys in their 40s? (laughs) (laughs) What's the title for this? This is this is legitimately the worst business idea I've ever heard. Is a good idea. (laughs) There are two um, I'm really excited about the inevitable uh, FX adaptation of, of Intermezzo coming I, I, coming in 2026. I can't wait. A couple of other things that we're sort of kicking around on uh, this sort of deadline Hollywood Reporter-verse. Uh, Guy Ritchie mm-hmm. and Ronan Bennett, who I mentioned uh, last week in association with Shogun because he was, I think, the writer originally attached to revive the James Clavell novel and the miniseries yes. for FX. Uh, he is uh, a person of interest for me. He's been on The Watch before. We talked about his show Top Boy, which is one of my favorite shows of the last few years. Uh, Guy Ritchie and Ronan Bennett. Interesting pairing, right? You're like, damn, yeah. what did these guys cook it up? Tell me. A Ray Donovan spinoff. <laughs> it's so wild. But like a movie. 
It's right? called The Donovans. It's a series set in London. It's a series? Yeah. I think oh, so. I thought they were doing a movie. I'm pretty sure it's a series. Uh, is this an example of you can't get anything made unless it's been made before? Um, yes. I mean, particularly this is for... These guys seem like pretty pretty certified dudes. I guess the mo- like, you know, money is money, but like, I would feel like they could probably get a London crime thriller movie or TV series off the ground. Guy Ritchie makes a movie every nine months, seemingly. So I guess this this paramount idea of like... You're right, it's a series, by the way. I was Spinning wrong. off billions as trillions and yeah. doing all these like kind of maybe a Nurse Jackie revival or whatever, and now well, this Ray Donovan story. I mean... I, I think there's a clear method to the madness, which is... so. Basically, Showtime doesn't really exist anymore. Functionally, it doesn't exist anymore. Right. It is just part of Paramount+. Plus. And there are two mandates at play. One is, let's just iterate. Let's, let's make multiple spinoffs of successful brands, bring back things that have already existed. But let's also take some of the DNA from the Sheridan-verse, which is get big, big ticket um, packages together, get big stars, make things as shiny as possible to stand out and pop. I don't know what the B side of that story is. I would imagine it means we'll make less other stuff around the margins because the budgets that they have are the budgets. But to me, this story is not just a continuation of the Trillions uh, spinoff story, yeah. but also in concert with the other announcement this week that was exciting, which is that George Clooney's long gestating uh, uh, yeah. American version of one of our favorite shows, the French series Le Bureau, is... I just did that for you. Is um, You always put a little Dijon on it. Yeah, you got to slather it. It's got to slather the baguette. Is um, moving towards production and with a likely star uh, in Michael Fassbender. Yeah. Which is incredibly exciting. It got me to uncork the, I want you to put the word out that we're back up. <laughs> me In the text that I sent you. Yeah. But again, like it, feels strange that this is an this is for what used to be Showtime, but will now be for Paramount Plus. I mean, it's it's Clooney. It's an international hit show and piece of IP. It's Fastbender, but this seems to be their strategy. I take almost all Paramount news with a grain of salt, just because of the, uh, the precarity of their position. Well, yeah, and also like the rumors of their being sold, being merged, whatever. And I feel like when the Showtime Paramount like union first happened there was just so much talk about all the stuff that they were going to do this this adaptation of the bureau has been kicked around for a while or at least discussed and then there was like you know there was ideas that like the creator of the bureau was going to do another show that might hit american stores so i i think i'm i think that was unrelated to this that he was shopping a show i don't know what happened uh i think i'm just when it comes to paramount stuff the only thing that seems to actually go from like, here's a bunch of stuff we've announced, now it's on TV, is the Taylor stuff, is Taylor Sheridan stuff. Yeah, although, I mean, I think these things will happen. The, the, I think this, the Donovans and the department will happen. And I think that you, you could look at this in a cynical way and saying they're putting the shiniest stuff in the shop window. Yeah, sure. Um, to make it, make it attractive. I mean, I, I, you could make the case... I don't know if this is the case, if this is a winning argument to make in like boardroom merger discussions, if they are even happening, but to be like, boy, it would be a shame to have this incredible Michael Fassbender spy show on a service that not many people have. Right. As opposed to we are making this in order to get more people to subscribe. It's like they're, they're Olympics. They're Olympics like in the... Like every- we've bought the rights to the Olympics, so oh, now Peacock I, is propped up. You I know? thought you meant Michael Fassbender has been changing his blood. <laughs> in I wouldn't put it past him. No, he's definitely changed his blood. It's it's hard to do those like long long haul like uh, car races that he does. Is is he is he the upscale Frankie Munoz? Like, is that his thing? <sighs> I, the like, reason I sighed is just because sometimes you you hit you get a little close to the bullseye. 
Oh, really? Well, he's a guy who's like pretty much like he stepped away cars. from. Yeah. And I like when the killer came out, I was like diving deep into my Fassbender research. And yeah. like really the only time he had talked over the last couple of years was for a like long I, like car manufacturer documentary about him doing Le Mans, I think. How extensive are your fast binders? They're all color coded. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you asked. They have a special shelf. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm obviously like I wait with bated breath for the department. I'm I'm interested enough in the Donovans just because Ronan Bennett's a really cool writer, and I'd be fascinated yeah. to see a London crime thriller. The Ray Donovan part about it doesn't mean anything to me. But I think that's what's weird about this. I don't think it means anything to anyone other than them saying, hey, come look in our cupboards. And if there's anything that interests you, you take it. I, the, if this is successful, it's hard to be mad at the, the strategy of saying, this guy can write a hell of a London crime thriller. We want to be in business with him doing what he does best, but he has to wear this branded jacket while he does it. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about one other story that came out this week, which was that HBO Warner Brothers Discovery, I guess mm-hmm. Warner Brothers Discovery is the right way to put it, are uh, announced that they were down to a three-writer, I don't know, Bake Off. Well, they didn't announce. This was reported. Reported, sorry. Yeah. So it's been reported that HBO is down to, or Max is down to its three finalists for a revival of the Harry Potter universe. TV show. A t- as a TV show mm-hmm. uh, that Zaz- Zaslav had met with J.K. Rowling with some folks and that uh, they were they were bringing back Harry Potter and they have narrowed this down to three writers to take the job on. Right. So the the understanding, I don't know if this has ever been officially announced, but I think it's sort of, it's been intuited or assumed like they're going to do the books again. Yeah. They're going to do them in more depth as a 10-year project, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so they were looking and this was, uh, this was out in the town. I mean, this was announced at the end of last year, and agents were like asking all their clients if they liked Harry Potter books to throw them into the mix for consideration. Um, your your gal Joanne Rowling is in charge of this. Yeah. Um, so she's d- deciding who she wants to be shepherding the project and whose vision makes the most sense. <laughs> your gal. <laughs> Just, well, she, she. We could cover her on our podcast about women writers. That's true. <laughs> our, our most controversial episode. <laughs> That, we would do it only for clicks, guy. I promise. Um, <laughs> just like paddling, <laughs> paddling as fast as I can. But we're not editing this. I promise. This reminds me of being a lifeguard when I was in my teen years and just kind of like twirling the whistle. Just, I see you. I yeah. see that you're struggling while you're swimming. But I'm not sure if you're, are you waving or drowning? Am I blow? I don't know. <laughs> it's your second reference this podcast to all the sports you did. That was a job. That was a summer job. That's, it wasn't a volunteer situation? No, I didn't volunteer. It's picturing you on a slightly smaller chair. You're like, can I get him? <laughs> Take your lifeguard to work day. Yeah. Um, uh, um, okay. So the reason this kind of rubbed me, like this show could be good. We have no idea. It's a very high profile project yeah. for Warner Brothers Discovery. It is what it is. I actually do have what, a question about the sort of artistic merits of this, but go ahead. What, what really bummed me out about it um, one was, and I'm sure no one was happy that this was leaked, um, that there are the three names of writers I'm not familiar with and don't know personally. Francesca Gardner, Tom Moran, and Kathleen Jordan were named by uh, Deadline as the finalists. Yeah. Um, what really that's rubbed... That's the first time that's happened, right? Like, there's often, no. like, in these big big IP things, it's but like, we're down to a couple a of bake people. Off. Right. What really rubs me the wrong way, and I've been through one of these, um, didn't come out the other side. Yeah. Is, this is an... Well, you know no- what? You, who, you didn't need Lord of the Rings. No. <laughs> No. It's, I mean, I think it's fine. What if Frodo was a detective? <laughs> <Is> it, <laughs> first of all, what if Frodo was Froda? 
<laughs> let's and what if it was set in Dublin, uh, <laughs> Texas? Um, this is all free work. Yeah, this is what bums me out. It, it's it, it's it's an enormous amount of life disrupting free work to have a chance to be in the room to be considered for something that could potentially change your professional life. It doesn't mean it's not worth doing. It's just that it's one of the things that I felt like we went on strike for. Yeah, was to shorten this. If this pro if this process began conservatively at the end of 2023, and I believe uh, the deadline article says that they are going to be um, announcing this at some point in the next couple of months, the decision might come in June. That's half of a year of stress inducing. Time consuming. Now, when you say work. the work, are, can you can you just give our listeners a little bit of an idea about generally what happens when you're quote unquote up for a job like this? Well, you have to make presentations, right? And basically, you graduate levels of zooms up to in persons of of answering questions and presenting to the gatekeepers of something. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine ultimately it will involve being with J.K. Rowling and making the pitch directly to her, as well as the heavy decision makers. And in a case like this. I don't think that David Zaslav traditionally sits in on creative meetings, but would, is he very attuned to this? Sure. For sure. It's an enormous, enormous thing. It's not easy to be preparing presentations, to be constantly refreshing your you know, relationship with the material and, and preparing for Zooms and all this stuff. Again, always a caveat when we talk about these things. It is not coal mining, but coal mining is generally free, is not free labor. And it kind of bums me out, particularly when it's... Did you see the it's, Gilded Age? Because it's, it's <laughs> kind of borderline, <laughs> right. you know? It just bums me out when then it's made public. So it seems like these three capable people are participating in a kind of lurid reality show yeah. to win the golden ticket to get a job that they might not even get to keep because, you know, what's to stop? Sure, because every time, like half the time these things, it's like, this person has been replaced. As yeah, the when Craig Mason like, steps in at the 11th hour and brings the series over the finish line. I right. mean, I, I'm, I'm just speculating with a little bit of saltiness because just fr from the, the Writer's Guild perspective, like that, that part bums me out. Yeah, right. Do you think that that is the way in which this is being handled or the way in which writers have to work in the sort of, say, the last couple of years? How is that different from the way it was maybe before COVID or maybe in like 2018 or something like that, where it was like, was it more of a like, here's my pitch take it or leave it kind of thing? Like, and no, a little I mean, I less think, of like a, a dry dress rehearsal? I, I think there have always been, there's always been free work involved. There's always been the, the soft pitching leading to the major pitching to get the job. Yeah. I mean, you know, you don't hire in any um, occupation. It's not like you get paid to do the job interview. I mean, I, I understand the way that looks in terms of um, the larger marketplace, but there are so many more stutter steps now than there used to be. Part of this is because the decisions have a lot more money riding on them. This is this is Harry Potter, which is arguably the the, the biggest and most um, profitable franchise in the world. Yeah. Um, they can't rush into that, nor should they, nor would the fans want them to. But as these things have gotten bigger and bigger, the the stutter steps to be like, okay, well, could you just give us some ideas? Could you put those in writing? Could you do a PowerPoint? Could you do a brief outline of what you would do with the first give, season? Give me a mood board. I mean, these are traditionally paid steps. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it's part and parcel with what is going on in the industry at large, which is it used to be you get paid to write a pilot and they make a decision. Now you get paid to write a pilot and their decision might be, could you write a second episode? Could you write two more episodes? Could you write four episodes and a series Bible? Because you want to max, they want to maximize the amount of relatively cheap labor they can get before things go into production and a writer's room or prep and all the other things come into play. So, it's extending the runway to a point that is uncomfortable, if not unpleasant for a lot of people. But it also, but the real issue for me is just the like, 
it, I, I'm sure these people are fine and thrilled for the opportunity, and they don't need me caping up for it. Yeah, but it, but it's it bummed me out when I went public, right? Because it's hard. It's hard out here. Do you think that there is um, a huge market? I mean, obviously, there's a huge market for Harry Potter stuff. In fact, I think like it's probably unremarked upon how reliably like popular mm-hmm. this stuff is. As say adapting each of these books over the course of 10 episode, hour-long episodes mm-hmm. of television, do you think that the material, because I've never read it, or seen the movies, honestly, mm-hmm. lends itself to that? Yes. Like, could you just be like, I'm going to shoot each page? Like, that's what I'm doing. I mean, if Mallory was here, I think she could give you a more um, full-throated answer of excitement. I mean, these are really, really rich, and incre- they're very long books, especially mm-hmm. later in the series. People adore them, and successive generations are discovering them and, and loving them every day, and like, you know, uh, not this is our put on my Thomas Friedman columnist hat, but like the stores are packed everywhere they are in the country and around the world. People buying the the chocolate frogs and the hats and the out like all of it. You could monetize almost every single aspect of it, and they kind of have. Yeah. So the idea of a incredibly rigorous text to screen adaptation is, I think, a probably safe bet um, to be a success. Would I? Does that like light my fire in terms of like? And I'm not saying. I, I, to be clear, no one asked me. I'm not. I was not involved in this on any level. Uh, no, I, know. I was. Just, I was just asking I, as like, a, like out of curiosity. Like if I was like, there's a Harry Potter series in 2026. Are you like, aside from like obviously like probably family members right. being like, can't wait to check this out. Would you be like, great? Like here we go. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, I think it depends. I I, I think generally people who listen to this podcast know, and I, I feel like you and I are the same about this. That like. The more, if something is trumpeting its absolute uh, rock ribs, like his fealty to it, yeah, right. That I, I think the pleasures that can be derived from that are probably not going to be for me because I didn't read all the books. I read them to my older daughter until she could read them for herself, and then she dusted me. <laughs> um, and I think maybe there's some other creative possibilities within this world, but you know, J.K. Rowling controls all of it and is not going to let anyone else come play with her toys, and that's her her right, and it's obviously very profitable for her. So that's what we get, but. I will say, as one extra missive from Daddington Island, um, I thought that, this is completely uninteresting to you, I promise, but I thought that Netflix's live adaptation of Avatar The Last Airbender, which debuted last week, was going to be a huge hit in my house. I was like... It's been... It's not, though, right? It has been summarily rejected without even being watched. Wow. Now, I don't know if this will continue. Without even being watched? I showed the trailer, and it... Was lukewarm, but when, you know when as, you when you see your children mm-hmm. reject something out of hand after yes. five seconds, are you like my work here is done? Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. I was like, as someone who it, like I defy the two of you to name any time where I have uh, rejected an entire idea sure. off of a trailer. Yeah, certainly not something that made a billion dollars at the box office and is nominated for this best picture. A career yeah. obituary. Yeah. So I am proud that she's my daughter, but uh-huh. I did think when it came on last week, I was like. Oh, here we go. Like, I got to guess what we're going to watch Friday night, family time. We're going to watch the show. Absolutely not. Because she said, again, I'm not trying to besmirch this Netflix show. I, I have not watched it. That's fine. But it was really interested that, and this is for people who don't know, this is based on the beloved and actually pretty amazing Nickelodeon cartoon that was then turned into an awful M. Night Shyamalan right? movie yeah. um, that has been memory hold. And this is like trying to atone for that in many ways. And again, is preaching itself is like we're accurate we're 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 faithful to the source material she's like i don't want to i don't want to take something see something that is like a wonderful memory for me done as this is her her words now 
crappy CGI. Wow. Yeah, she it it, it doesn't. What's interesting is now that the it's a live action show, but in many ways it is as animated as the cartoon. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't see the value add, which I think is interesting. I don't, again, I don't think there's anything, I don't know if there's anything larger to intuit about the future of our culture that way, but well, I thought that was I interesting. Well, I do wonder though, with your, for your daughter's cultural experience. Right. And she's really into anime, right? Yeah. She's really into manga. She's, she's like grown up with that concept of this is what like this stuff can look like. And, and mm-hmm. also like my brain can sort of animate this mm-hmm. stuff itself. Like when I'm reading it or when I'm watching it, like, you know, I think we had some of the, I've had some experiences, but over the last year, like scavengers ruin or blue eye samurai, yeah. where I'm like, I'm actually, I don't think you could have shot that. I mean, right. you, you could have, but like, I think that there's something kind of brilliant about that kind of expansive your only limit is your imagination sort of animation. I And I know that I'm always dick about animation, but I'm being serious. And if you are used to that, and if you grew up with that, and that's your, to, to some mm-hmm. extent, like your version of this story is is animated, to see kind of like this CGI version, I think I'm going through this even, honestly, like watching, I was before Dune, I was watching the trailers and it was, one was for the new Planet of the Apes and one was for the new King Kong. And both just looked like, kind of cartoons. Yeah. It's just with like Brian Tyree Henry being like, what have we done? And I, I kind of am like, I don't really give a shit about King Kong or the Planet of the Apes, but my version of those movies is just feels a lot more like palpable and, and yeah. like viscerally real, even though they are absurd like ideas. Well, I think it might be time to revisit the very baked in assumption among generations up to Gen X and maybe one more generation past it that turning something into live action is classing it up. Yeah. That it's improving it. When, to your point, you can do less, or you used to be able to do less visually, and now you can do just as much, but then what are you making? Um, what, is, what, are you, what is it about Avatar The Last Airbender, which was on Netflix as a cartoon for many years, which is how my kids discovered it. What are you, what are you doing with it that makes it better? What do you have to say about this material other than we're just expanding it, the IP? It's an argument that people used to make about comics too, which is just like, you can, you can, the world has fallen in love with the Avengers, but they don't actually know what's great about comics because comics can be so batshit crazy right. and don't have to be X, Y, or Z thing in a two-hour movie. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think that's, but I think that's an interesting, it's an interesting point that this, in the context of this conversation, it feels like a very old-fashioned attitude like ah we've got to bring this to the masses well the masses speak manga the, ma- the masses speak <laughs> yeah. anime this yeah. has been multiple decades now where that's what people are comfortable with and what they understand and what they in many cases what they prefer to watch now on the flip side you know one of the things that i think is probably like very safe for people mm-hmm. working on movie sets and tv sets now is mm-hmm. that i think they use real fire much less oh are you thinking of leo and once upon a time in hollywood I think I was, I was actually just thinking about, um, there was, what was I just watching where it may have been Masters of the Air, but Mm -hmm. there was something where I was like, that is not real fire. Like those Mm -hmm. are, you know, it just, yeah, it was Masters of the Air. And I mean, maybe it was, but it didn't look real. Uh, Masters of the Air still getting better and better every week. I love that. By the way, I don't want to continue to our Dune conversation where you've seen it and I haven't, but, because I haven't seen it yet. Um, But you know, sometimes I listen to Fresh Air. And your guy, Denis, was on uh-huh. uh, yesterday. 
And one thing that he was, was talking he like, about. Dialogue is shit. He said it again. <laughs> he did. Yeah. He asked, he was with Guillermo del Toro doing it, and they were both just like, who gives a fucking shit about dialogue? I mean, <laughs> I, I do take larger issue with that, but I appreciate I, I appreciate his I love commitment. to see a takesman in the wild, you know? Well, also sharpening his, his katana as he's like. <laughs> <laughs> but he's so committed to his version of cinema that it's a thing. Yeah. He's not like wishy-washing it, being like, let's make the cheapest version of all of it. Like, he's making something that's visual, and that's his way of telling stories. And frankly, hearing him being interviewed on a podcast, I can tell that he thinks in pictures. Yeah. Which I don't mean that as a dig, but he's not waxing poetic about everything about it. He's yes. like, I want to show you what this means to me. But the thing that he said that I found really interesting, and maybe people who are deeper in these um, actual, like, production streets know this, is that his biggest priority in all the Arrakis stuff, for especially the sequel, was using natural light at all times. Mm-hmm even if that required doing pickups on like two-person scenes in completely different locations because of where the sun was. Yeah. So some of the conversations are cut between like 12 different takes and locations. That's very interesting. He wanted it always to be the actual sun, which made everyone insane. But I, I can guarantee sight unseen that that makes fake computer worms look better. I just, I believe that. Yeah, I mean, his, this is a whole other conversation. I want to wait for you to see Dune before okay. we talk about Dune. But my fire thing am was- I do, Am I Dune too much? Do you like <laughs> my that? fire thing was really just, the other night I was watching an action movie that we're going to be doing on Rewatchables. Okay. Um, you can't say it, despite Larry David. I know, I'm waiting. Bill has the Larry David rule where he goes up on Sunday and says what we're doing. But in it, several houses explode. Mm. And you could tell- they blew those houses up. They did. They really did. And then they were like, let's blow it up some more because of a gas tank inside of the house. And I wonder whether or not someone your daughter's age mm-hmm. would watch that and then watch like the CGI version of an explosion or fire and care one way or the other about the difference. Like she might care about Last Airbender's like yeah, like, I, but for things like you know, we watch Die Hard and like all this glass explodes off the Nakatomi Plaza, and we're like, it's it's so real. Remember <laughs> what it did to my guy's feet? Yeah, but like they would probably I, do that as CGI now. Well, it's interesting because these I I have. So does a young person look at that and mm-hmm. say, I that the the real version of this doesn't move me. The stuntman version of this so doesn't I, move. I have me. two children who are currently seven and ten, and they have known the word CGI and CG for most of their existence. Yeah, and comment on it like blithely, like in terms of that was good or bad, or I see that like that's just part of their visual language. And I'm interested to see what they not just what they bump on if they watch older things, but also what they are charmed or delighted by and how it affects them almost spiritually or aesthetically when they see other things. Like, I, I was very taken with the fact, I mean, not just because I, I liked it too, but my, my older daughter really liked The Wonderful Life of Henry Sugar, mm-hmm. which is the Wes Anderson yeah. short film. He made four, but it's the longest and sort of the the lead the lead feature of these uh, Roald Dahl adaptations. And these are on Netflix. For Netflix yeah. And this one is nominated for an Oscar for Best um, uh, Short. And, you know, it is a Wes Anderson movie. And so everything is very homemade and practical. And like the scene where a yogi is, is in a a Lotus position and levitating, he's sitting on a box that is painted the same color as the background. And I think that they, she really liked that and noticed it. Yeah. So it's interesting to see the noticing go backwards too, that like, you know, how much was done. I, I feel like I joked on this podcast a few months ago about how I tried to show them a Harold Lloyd movie. I was like, ah, you did. Yeah. So that was, didn't go great. Yeah. 
But there was a different reaction to the perceived peril. Like, there's the scene when he's hanging from the famous scene when he's hanging yeah. from the clock. And this is in Safety Last. I think it stressed them out in a way that um, all of the fire in the movies that Uncle Chris keeps trying to show them does not. <laughs> That's right. You know? Um, the anime version of backdraft that you're trying to get off. The yeah, ground. I think there's like there's there's a huge argument to be made for like when you watch something, say like say from the 40s, you may respond to a certain actorly style that's mm-hmm. like pre method mm-hmm. that feels very theatrical or yeah, like declarative, declarative or stagey, and that's also because of like you know audio recording was different back mm-hmm. then. Uh, and you might also like I was thinking kind of a better example of what I'm talking about might be the difference between Fast X and mm-hmm. Bullet the Steve McQueen movie. Right. Both have incredible car chases. One is completely computer animated or mostly computer animated. And the other is like guys driving around San Francisco and crashing into things in real life. But I don't know if like that would matter to someone who is watching Fast X. I don't, maybe that the whole point is, no, I want to see this car crash through a tower in Dubai. I felt like I had a similar reaction, though, and we talked about it a little bit when we were talking about over this the is, summer. This is a very Klosterman pod for us today. Well, we were just both listening to Chuck. Yeah. We miss our friend. Yeah. It was delightful <laughs> listening to him on Bill. I owe him a call. The Mission Impossible podcast we did in the summer and like why the Tom Cruise, Haley Atwell car chase worked, quote-unquote, yeah. and why Harrison Ford standing on two trains in the Indiana Jones movie didn't work. And... I, I am sure it wouldn't, I don't need Christopher McQuarrie to explain it to me that there is a ton of post-production in that car chase. I, yes. But there is also, maybe it's, maybe the comp more is the, in the same way that like Denis Villeneuve is thinking about the light, you could tell that McQuarrie was thinking about the very, very basic, almost silent film comedic possibilities and the choreography of two people trying to drive a car while handcuffed, you know, or a small car. There are things that are very, um, human scale. Mm-hmm. This car is little and the other cars are big. Yeah. Um, as it's opposed, hanging off the building. Yeah. Right. As opposed to we can do anything and we will show you that we can. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now they have unlimited talk, text and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, 
view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Interesting stuff. Hmm. Really thought-provoking stuff. Where Andy. are we going next today? Uh, should I, we go to feudal Japan? Yeah. I, speaking of feudal, the one thing I realized I forgot to do, and maybe we can revisit in the future, was I was imagining that there is, in the same way like in Shogun, there's the five regents who are left in charge of the empire. Mm-hmm. Who are the five regents in charge of stripping me of my Philadelphia citizenship <laughs> for my error last week? And I was like, is it? I figured it's like gritty. Yeah, Ed Rendell. Ed Rendell, the Gov, Questlove. The jeweler with the diamond in his beard, R.I.P. <laughs> um, Patty LaBelle. Is that like Robin's Ethan Walnut? Yes. Yeah. Rockin' Robin's. Yes. Rockin He's Robin. no longer with us. I Googled. I, I got it. Yeah. But late, late into life, when he was a more, um, you know, like people shrink a little bit and they get older, like he still had the diamond in there. A little scraggly beard. <laughs> Kept the diamond in. You make it sound like we're all going to turn into skeletons. Are, are well, I mean, wa- like long term. Are know. you watching the presidential race? <laughs> <laughs> it's weird. You're like, what a... <laughs> what a what an interesting, uh, yeah, oh, hypothetical. Man. Okay, okay. You can fill out your you can fill out your bracket my, my, of my regents later. Feudal regents of 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 Philadelphia. who determine whether it's Philly or yeah. Not. Yeah. Um, okay, so I was trying to think of like how to approach Shogun because we've already kind of did our uh, our hosannas for it when we talked about it in the preview. The two episodes are up. The first two episodes of the series, and. I, I will just reiterate like my general praise for this show, which is essentially like after rewatching these episodes, there's just so much like craft going on here and so much of like what I think television is great at, which is telling these really dense, in-depth stories and introducing us to worlds that like are different from our own in some way, or whether it's historically or culturally or geographically or whatever. Um I was thinking a lot about Thrones, though, because obviously Thrones has been the show that sort of, uh, I think, has become closely associated with uh, Shogun in its in the critiques of the show and the praise of the show. Yeah. yeah, I think there's an obvious nod to Game of Thrones in the trailer in the in the credits, rather. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there, there's like a an easy there's an easy way of just being like, oh, this is FX's shot at a Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. This is FX's big swords and sex. Uh, the uh, epic, and I think there's some some truth to that. But there's something kind of interesting about the way Game of Thrones starts, which is there was a lot of humility. I think to that show, mm-hmm. you know, it was so, something where they had had to scrap the pilot. They were kind of making a little bit more of a chamber drama. There was a lot of like obviously sex and violence in those first few episodes and in that first season, some huge twists. But I don't think they knew what they had. And when you read these Benioff and Weiss interviews that have been coming out around Three Body Problem, I think that that's the, that's the case there too. It's been interesting to hear them talking about making Three Body Problem because obviously I think the budget is much bigger. I think they know there's a lot more eyes on them. This is an international sci-fi mm-hmm. property that people are like, okay, you guys got to nail it. And I think they know that this is like their quote-unquote follow-up to Game of Thrones and in some ways maybe a way to make things right. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking about all this in relationship to Shogun because Shogun is at once 
you know, I think somewhat obscure material to the at, at this point compared to Game of Thrones. Yeah, to that generation of fans, yeah. I think so. And also is about, you know, it's it's uh, 50% if not more in a, in another language than most of the viewers watching are going to know. Uh, I think that there is like a kind of complexity to the uh, relationships and the customs for, in the show. It's all stuff you have to learn, just like you did for Game of Thrones. You know, we didn't speak Dothraki. We didn't know about, like, speak you know, yourself. <laughs> all these things. But um, I think Shogun has to come out and have a little bit of swagger, and it does. Because it can't really afford to be like, people are just going to watch the chatty version of this show. It has to have the ships. It has to have the guy about to commit seppuku in the waves. It has to have like kind of these big swing moments. So I was wondering if you could help me locate like where this show is on the meter between like, hey, we're just trying to do our yeah. thing. It's humble. It's hu- We're finding our way because shows aren't allowed to find their way anymore. I think that's a very good point. I think that when we think back about the launch of Game of Thrones, what feels so upside down about it now is that the the pressure that existed for the first season was trying to impress the HBO viewer, not to attract dragon fans. Yeah, yeah. The conversation around it was, what's HBO doing and why is this an HBO show? HBO has Boardwalk Empire. Why is it making this? And most people, when Game of Thrones like was midway through the first season, if you hadn't already had like uptake on it, it would get recommended to me as like, you got to watch Game of Thrones. No, trust me, you'll like it. Right. Like as if like now in retrospect, that seems ridiculous. But like, I guess at the time I wasn't like a big dragons and, 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 and now fantasy. And now that's just, now, that's also true. <laughs> but that's what made the show so smart was it, it, something that, you know, depending who you ask, may have been um, something that they thought was a limitation. That they had to earn the dragons and the budget that comes comes with it and the leap into just full genre storytelling, right? There's there there had to be a... They had to start small for any number of reasons that I think ultimately benefited the project. And what I find so interesting about Shogun is that it never... I mean, this is why I don't work in the executive suites of networks, but like it never occurred to me that we would be talking about Game of Thrones when we talked about this yeah. show. Uh, I didn't have any sense of what the show would be, so I should say that up front. But I think that one of the advantages of the FX leadership team that has been in place for so long with John Landgraf and Nick Rad and Gina Balian and, and, and many other people there who have just been consistent in what they've been doing is that they have a lot of conversations. And they are... I don't know if that's still the case, despite, you know, post-Disney merger and Hulu and all these things, but they had the luxury of taking their time. Mm-hmm. And maybe, I, I don't know how granular they get, but I imagine that when Game of Thrones hit, and it hit a decade ago, plus over a decade ago, they had a number of spirit conversations about what was hitting. Mm-hmm. And more specifically, what is their version of that and how to um, how to make something that works on HBO work for them. And instead of launching, um, instead of, I mean, not that they could have, but basically if you think of a lot of the post-Game of Thrones reactions were things like, let's shell out a quarter of a billion dollars for, um, for the Lord of the Rings universe. Um, and, and assuming that what people liked about Game of Thrones was the thing that they actually kind of bumped on by the end, which is just, this is, this is storytelling on a level that is no longer human or recognizable. It's just dragons incinerating stuff. Yeah. Um, 
they were they were saying, well, people who liked Game of Thrones and the numbers that they liked it also liked X, Y, or Z thing. Just fundamentally being like, we're not going to do a fantasy epic. We're going to do an epic is seems so logical. Yeah. But that totally, I, I, that didn't occur to me. And it, it, just as it didn't occur to a lot of the other um, programming heads. So I think that's very smart. I would say that, um, I mean, yes, you could listen to my argument and be like, if they were so smart, why did they wait 14 years to have their Game of Thrones <laughs> killer? Sure. So I don't really think it's a one-to-one, but I do think none of these decisions happen in a vacuum. They are ongoing conversations about what works for whom and how and why. And I'm sure that when the rights to this were available many, many years ago, someone started to ask these questions. I, I, I think that for me, maybe this is on brand, the things that I bumped on, which were minimal and mostly confined to the, the first hour as I was kind of getting my bearings, were the things that felt more in your face and okay. aggro. Whether it's like the couple cutbacks to the the, the the piping bowl of man soup that my guy... Um, oh, yeah, when he's boiling in the kettle. Yeah, that my... Um, who's my guy? My Yabushige? number one guy, Yabushige, is making. Yabushige, yeah. Um, or I'm not, at least through two, I'm not a huge fan of the score. And this oh, is, this interesting. Is, this is Atticus Ross minus... And Trent Reznor. Yeah. Um, you're, you're a real Reznor originalist. I need to run that through just Trent's keyboard, you know, before I can really sign off on it. <laughs> uh-huh. There's nothing wrong with the music. This is this is not me trying to find something to complain about, but there are moments with the music that are that feel like they are doing the work of a note that said, we got to grab people faster. And so what they're going to do is pump up the yeah. music there. Yeah. Can I just inter- d- yeah. digress really quickly? Uh, I currently am obsessed with the main theme of Masters of the Air, and I've been like humming it around the house mm-hmm. constantly. Yeah, and I we're 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 a divorce town. Like it's she's just like, why, why the fuck do you keep going? Da 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 da. That's not how I hum. Do you do it? Yeah. First of all, it's not humming. It's like leap day. It's another thing you missed early. Do do you do that when you? tackle some dishes in the sink? Yes, like, actually, yeah. So it's really like to get you going because you're a master of Dawn soft scrub. <laughs> yeah. Is that... I'm a master of the sink. Is that... I'm trying to think. I mean, maybe we should save this for our Patreon because I think there, <laughs> there, there are relationship moments when this music would be great <laughs> and moments when I think it might be suspect. You know? Yeah. Um, as is, the word master is problematic. <laughs> so, okay. Should you start humming the Shogun music? I actually can't remember it. It didn't even bother me. Okay. Okay. Uh, okay, you didn't like the music. and That wasn't my takeaway. And you don't like boiling guys. No, I'm open to it. It's interesting. What if this pod was only five minutes long mm-hmm. and it was like, Shogun liked mm-hmm. X, Y, and Z. Didn't like it, Honestly, TUV. Yeah. with this attention economy, I think we would do very well. I mean, so we talked the other day about why we loved the show and I... This won't surprise anyone. I, I rarely, even the shows I really like, I'm rarely like, let me get back into it quickly. I had to stop myself watching ahead because we have screeners and I'm really, really enjoying the show. So I did yeah, not watch it. Yeah, well, ahead. this is also a really, I mean, I think that, you know, it's a significant amount of time to spend these two episodes. I think it's like 70 and 50 in runtime for the first two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, there is that thirst for the third one because you're almost like, I, I got all the sort of, I have the family trees straight. I got all the different mm-hmm. plot lines I know lines who my going. people are now. I, I'm, I'm, I'm following Martine, the, mm-hmm. the, the double-dealing preacher here. Mm-hmm. I got I to gotta kind of stay on top of it. And then, like, if you wait a week, you may be like, oh, fuck, what are we doing again? <laughs> um, anyway, 
I wanted to talk to you a little bit about something which is the art of the character introduction because okay. I thought that this episode, these two episodes did a, had some really like pretty iconic kind of ways of us. We, we meet these characters in just like these incredible ways. Now, obviously the first character we meet is the pilot, John, who is played by Cosmo Jarvis. And one of the things I really like about this character is that even though in it's sort of maybe 10, 15 years ago, if, especially when Shogun was first in, uh, uh, adapted as a miniseries of Richard Chamberlain, that's your POV character. That's the person that we're going to spend mm-hmm. most of our time with. And what I really loved about this is that from the second you meet John, you're kind of like, he's an abrasive prick, yeah. you know? And I do believe that he is probably raiding Catholic bases and being being really violent. He's, he's and, untrustworthy. Yes. He's unreliable. And so the traditional POV character, the audience avatar, the person that we're experiencing this world through, actually to me, maybe morally, but maybe just like mm-hmm. vibe-wise, is an outsider uh, a little bit. You know, I think that he is as much a disruption to everything as he is like our our way in, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I think that, that was, that's a crucial and really like fascinating like accomplishment. I think this. that's a really, I think that's very well observed and I think it's very subtle and I I I makes me want to rewatch to think about how exactly they did it and how much thought went into it because when he says and he says a version of this repeatedly he says I'm not going to die here yes. I'm not going to die like this yes. it doesn't sound like captain america being like not today hydra it sounds, No it sounds like a guy's deluded by his his own ambition yeah. yes and that he has this you know he has it's his his crusade might not be explicitly religious in fact it seems more anti-catholic than it is Protestant, pro-Protestant, pro-Protestant. but it's almost. But it seems like but, the crusade seems to be the glorification of self. It's right. like he's like, I think I'm meant for a bigger, and, bigger fate than this. And so, what's interesting then is that we see him uh, more clearly the way uh, Torinaga sees him, mm-hmm. which is as a tool, a tool, a chip, something to bargain with, something to use. You know, and and his and Blackthorn's chaos and his chaotic energy is in interesting contrast to the stillness with which uh, Torinaga leads. I mean, he keeps it's it's very intentional and interesting the way over those first two episodes Blackthorn appears to be dragged out of every scene he's in physically mm-hmm. where Tornaga just gets up and leaves after he said three things. Yeah, even though Tornaga is supposed to be essentially a hostage, you know, in some ways or a prisoner in in in, yes. in a kind of subtle way. But there's yeah. an economy to what he says and what he does that is very much in contrast. Um I also feel like his his character introduction is is quite awesome as well cuz he's doing the falconry, right? He's doing the falconry. Which is him controlling, you know, like communication, him controlling, you know. And showing his comfort level with my sworn enemy, birds. <laughs> That's right. I would never. Yeah. Kai and I would have an elaborate system of rats with information tied to their <laughs> tiny paws. And helping you make Which I believe stews. <laughs> I believe that's what... <laughs> and actually controlling me yeah. by living under my hat. Isn't that what Varys did? Master of Whispers? Wasn't there a lot of rat stuff? Was there? No, no, no. They were his little, um, what did he call them? He, birds. The children. He called them birds? Oh, I had it dubbed. <laughs> I was like, I can't handle this. So I, we went back in and we punched in rats. Rats, Because okay. that was more appealing. Yeah. Anyway, I, it's also the small things. Like, you know, you, you were joking before and like seeing Nestor Carbonell back on an island brought everybody back. But that was the other thing is his sort of like when he arrives, it's like the gear shift that yeah. the show needs at that point in the episode. But But it's also the way that the show is signaling its interest in multiple people 
through dynamic characters and dynamic character introductions. It's not through either performer, because other than Esther Carbonell, you know, I, I was saying before, like, Tadanobu Asano is recognizable, but I don't know him as one thing or another in particular. So you're not, they're not banking on us saying, aha, that person, I know he's important because he's famous. They're also not banking on us having some allegiance or interest in someone because they are being led by their archetype because we don't really know the lay of the land. Instead, the show is saying, this person has a little spark in his eye. Yeah, They're saying, um, Yabushige is kind of a freak. He's kind of interesting. Oh, what, yeah. what drives his passions? Why is he the <laughs> man the boy who, who brought <laughs> cucking to the East? Yeah, You know, I, I think our last episode established without question that cucking was invented by um, a bored British lord. Uh, I believe you said 12th century. It was an 11th century. <laughs> But, you know, at that time, there was a lot of cultural exchange where, like, you know, people know pasta came from the East to Italy. Yes. Um, and we in the West gave back as well. Right? <laughs> That's right. So the, the trade routes are myriad and fascinating. And I think that Shogun is really opening me up to just learning more. Yeah. It's what the Dutch East India trading thing was all about. Mm-hmm. It was just about bringing practices and customs. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about Mariko's. Uh, I don't remember if this is her first appearance but when she is sort of brought she goes in to see fuji's wife as she's got the blade to her neck because mm-hmm. he's he's made this mistake in the in the conference with the regents and he's oh yeah called everybody out so he's gonna commit seppuku and end his own line which is bad news for his baby mm-hmm. and his wife is like i can't live with the shame that i'm gonna have to live like basically like my family goes away yeah, and I have to live with like the shame that this guy's brought on our house, and that's when Anna Sawai's uh, Mariko character shows up. She eventually becomes a very important character throughout the series, I'm sure, but is like essentially the chief translator between Tornaga and Blackstone, mm-hmm. Blackthorn. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna keep saying Blackstone. I just I lo- I love private equity. That's, uh, <laughs> that's what drives you. Um, I thought this was a really am- amazing scene too. You know, obviously, just like chilling to watch somebody with a giant blade up against a, their throat while they're holding a baby but yeah. just like the the kind of what those two characters talked about was 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 sort of gripping okay so let me say this as an overarching thing like i think the show is doing a very good job of slow walking us into some particulars of the culture like the role that seppuku plays in this in in especially at this level of governance is important and interesting I really, really valued the fact that they didn't show it in these first two episodes. Yeah. I'm sure it's Chekhov's Seppuku, so I, I know it's coming, but I thought that was classy, to be honest, and also more interesting because we saw we hear it and we feel it. It's, the show's not going to show it's us... Hanging from, it's the hanging from a skyscraper thing that you were talking yes. about. It's like It's more effective to watch this woman's emotional anguish mm-hmm. and also her articulate, like the reasons why Mm -hmm. she's in this state of anguish, which are not just limited to, I'm going to miss my family. Mm -hmm. And then have that eventually pay off later in the episode, but not be graphic. And particularly the Yabushige scene in The Waves, where we see, where, where, where Blackthorn learns so much about this guy who has been not, he's not a comic character, but he's sort of his foil in those opening scenes together, what he is willing to do. Mm -hmm. And even just the perspective of it, is like, is he going to fight the ocean with his sword? Like, what is actually happening yeah. here? Um, I thought it was very artfully done and res- and tastefully done. I think that it's going to be an, uh, a question that we're going to have throughout the season, which is, 
they rush into this? Like, are we sure? Like, you got to go, like, it does seem like a zero to 60 thing. Oh, the seppuku thing? Yes. Yeah. Like a moment ago, when I was on some nonsense monologue about Harry Potter writers, you were like, may I interject? (laughs) (laughs) And I thought that was very polite. I don't think I... What did I even interject about? uh, You wanted to tell a story about singing Monsters (laughs) of the Air music, humming, I'm sorry, incorrectly in front of your wife. Um, Now, Um, do I think you need to end your line over that? No. Yeah. But if we were in feudal Japan doing a podcast, (laughs) you know, it, it, it seems rash. This is a good. This is a good Richard Lewis tribute from you today. We didn't talk about that. Yeah. We should talk about that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I maybe that'd be great if Richard Lewis was had done Shogun. It was just like I'm going to put you in my will. I promise, I'm going to put you in my will. I won't I, hear anything about it. I got to say, it's very sad that he passed away yesterday. One of the greats, man. Truly, one of the greats. I, I went down a deep rabbit hole of watching Richard like Lewis, many, on, Richard Curb. Lewis on, particularly on Curb clips, yeah. and. The thing that I really appreciated seeing back to back to back was just when they would be yelling at each other in character about something, and then there would be some sort of malapropism, and then they would just absolutely grab the wheel and just turn. Yeah. Like when he's he's really mad at Larry, and he's just like, you know, these are bad. He's like, these aren't bad people. These are not like Bin Laden's people. And he goes, did you say Bin Laden? <laughs> he's like, did I? He's like, it, well, sounds, it sounds like a shirt maker One of my favorite things is watching Kerb bloopers sometimes yeah. because... You know, JB Smooth just breaks David all the time. But watching him crack up, watching Larry David crack up at Richard Lewis, uh, like at the funeral or like about the sandwich and stuff is just so amazing. I also, what was your, because I know people have different relationships with Richard Lewis, whether it was as a stand-up. I kind of remember him as like a comic relief era, like 80s stand-up. That yes. was like sort of my major relationship to him. But my other big one was, do you remember the short, not short-lived, it ran a couple seasons, but there was an ABC sitcom called Anyone But You. And yeah, it was and, Jamie Lee Curtis. That's right. And Richard Lewis. And it was a romantic... Uh, I got it wrong. It's called Anything But Love. Anything But Love. And it ran for like three, four years in the late 80s into the early 90s. And I remember this, watching this show. And I remember that like, because Richard Lewis had the long hair and he like wore a leather jacket. Yeah. He was kind of like, I was like, this guy's a bad boy. This is, this is my perspective. <laughs> and then to realize that he's just another neurotic Jew <laughs> like me. I was like, oh, he's dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. Look at his hair. I kind of felt that attitude. way about Paul Reiser on Mad About You, where I was yeah. like, wow, this guy's really... He's a real everyman. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is... What... I used... You know, because sometimes I'm like looking at the culture, I'm like, what a, what a golden age it was in the 70s when everyone was like, Elliot Gould, sex symbol. Yeah. I was like, what did we do? What do we need to do? What do my people need to do to get back to that? But I realized we were running a good game through the 80s yeah. and 90s. You had to run. Reiser, Lewis, and they all end up... It was like, your Popovich era. <laughs> you guys just said... <laughs> 15 years of uninterrupted brilliance. But they all end up sitting around a table at a golf course and curb your enthusiasm yeah. fetching. Yeah. It's, they're, they're worst ways to go. Any other Shogun notes before we just lightly hit the regime and get out of here? I'd like to just say that this is the only consistent entertainment podcast that sandwiched their Richard Lewis tribute into a conversation <laughs> about seppuku in episode two of Shogun. I think it's really what now that we know Larry David confirmed listens to Ringer Pods, I think that he'd appreciate that. <sighs> no, uh, we, we're very excited about this show. We're going to keep talking about it from week to week, I'm sure. Yeah, so what are we going to... So the show is a Wednesday night show. I believe so. We'll be talking about it Thursday. So we'll be doing Thursdays. Yeah. So Monday kind of becomes our grab bag. Well, we have the regime on Sunday nights. Oh, yeah, I don't know if we're going to talk about the regime every week. It's certainly... Uh, so it's coming out on Sunday night. 
I would say for fans of the Ianucci style of comedy that you mm-hmm. find in Veep or The Thick of It. Or even or, in Succession because it's DNA. And very much Death of Stalin, which is like kind of, a, which was the show that I thought of the most or the movie that I thought of the most while watching this show. So this stars Kate Winslet as the chancellor, mm. quote unquote, but basically dictator of a, what do they call it? Middle European Middle country? Europe. It looks, it's very um, Grand Budapest Hotel vibe. Yes. The so there are some like, Obviously, like fictionalized versions, there are some fictionalized flourishes. Like the, the the country is unnamed. Everybody there speaks with an English accent, but it's meant to be, I think, sort of a hungry Eastern Bloc uh, ex-Soviet. Maybe. Hungry or hungry? Hungary, like Obron. You know? Oh, your boy. Yeah, <laughs> I got it. Greenwald man. <laughs> What's with the high and tight stuff from you today? I don't know. I don't know. Check my. Uh... Milligrams on my Zin pouch. And uh, Kate Winslet plays the chancellor of this country. It's very much got like this dry, uh, morbid British wit to it. Will Tracy wrote the first episode. Stephen Frears directed it. Uh, incredible Andrea Riseborough performance as, uh, as the chancellor's sort of assistant. Uh, and Matthias Schoenarts plays a alleged war criminal who comes into the sort of inner circle of the chancellor and becomes her sort of um, right-hand man, uh, for the better, lack of a better term. So uh, we'll be talking about that next week. I just thought we would put it on the radar. Yeah, I, I, you and I have only checked out the first one, so we won't get in front of it, really, other than to Well, they're say, only airing one, yeah. No, I know, but yeah. I mean, I found the show expertly made. And yeah. you know, friend of the podcast, Kate Winslet is good at anything. I'm a little confused to the project of this show. Because uh-huh. it was not what I thought it was going to be, in a way. I don't know, I don't know what I thought. Because it is an hour long, and it's sort of living in this space where it's like, yes, this is clearly um, from that same brutally satirical school uh, of British comedy. Yeah. But it's also an HBO drama that is poking fun at some things that exist in our world, but doing it in a lens. I I, I haven't got the tone. I'm not quite on board with it yet, because also the first episode does a lot of prologue to get Kate Winslet's chancellor character to a place with Schoenert's you know, sort of man of the people slash potential war criminal yeah. aid to where it's going to be going. Where she's going to start ruling with more of an iron fist. Yeah. Right. Right. So she's sort of been, you, you, you guys will see when you watch the episode, but she has sort of been being pulled in different directions by her cabinet. And um, so we don't want to give too much away before people get a chance to see it. I think that I watched this first episode. I agree with you largely that I was like, this is very good, but I'm not exactly, uh, I think I've now conditioned myself to be like, and what's the, What's the hook here? Like, what is it? That being said, like, um, it's Winslet, right? Like, that's yeah, ultimately all, is like her kind of having a, a, a multi-episode platform to cook. I think it's, I think cook is the right verb to use because they went shopping at the best markets. The ingredients here are absolutely well, first, first rate. What's confusing to me after one episode is what is the goal of the dish? Because if it's something like The Great, which was a show on Hulu that we didn't, end up talking too much about, but I think was in a similar arch, absurdist, political, satirical tone, that show worked for me. Like from one, I was like, I see it. I see it and I feel it, even though it's being, it's playing things broadly, but I'm also somehow vibing emotionally with it in okay. a way that, that works. And that's, a, that's the toughest thing to do. I don't think that's the goal of the show, but I just note that I don't think it, it I, I don't see it yet. Okay. I don't see the path after one, which is fine. We don't need to always grade things after one, but I was more confused after one episode than I was uh, excited. Well, we'll uh, I'm, I'm excited to see 
for people to check it out, and we'll talk more about it in depth on Monday, maybe. Uh, until then, yeah. we were produced by Kaya McMullen. Do you want to work anything out? Like, Do you, do you feel attacked <laughs> a little bit today? No, I'm okay. I just feel like, I, I think we started this podcast with you being like, explain leap day to me, leap year to me. <laughs> I tried to serve up a lot of Greenwald friendly dishes today. You know, with Sally a, Rooney, with Harry great, Potter. <laughs> I had a great time. Yeah. yeah. Um, we were produced by Kai McMullen and we will be back on Monday. Until then, I hope everybody has a great weekend. Even me. <laughs> Always you. Always you.